Well, good morning. My name is Matt Meyer. I'm one of the college pastors here, and I'm excited to dig into the scriptures with you this morning. I'm especially excited because we get to look at Jesus this morning, and I think you can never look at Jesus' life enough. There's always something new that we can learn from Jesus. And so I invite you, if you want to open your Bible to Matthew chapter 14, that's where we're going to be today. And as you do that, I want to uh, ask you to do something with me. I want to ask you to try to imagine yourself in this story as we look at it. I want you to think of yourself as Andrew or Peter or maybe as John or one of the other disciples, whoever your favorite is. Just imagine yourself as that person. And I especially want us to do that because if you've grown up in church, this is probably a pretty familiar story. You may have heard it every year growing up. If you didn't grow up in church, then you're in for a treat this morning. Maybe you've never heard this story, and it's a great one. But I want to invite you to do that with me. We're going to look at Peter's encounter with Jesus in Matthew chapter 14. We're going to start in verse 22. And it says this, immediately he, that would be Jesus, immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. And after he had sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. But the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. So we're going to practice what I just asked you to do right now. I want you to think, if you were one of the disciples and you were in this boat over here, right? What would you be thinking at this point? It says it's the fourth watch of the night. It's between three and six in the morning. Jesus put you into the boat at evening time. You've been in this boat for a long time on the Sea of Galilee. It's called a sea, but it's not that big. It's a lake. You're in the middle of the lake. You've been fighting the wind for a long time. What would you be thinking? What would you be feeling? What would be going on in your head? See, as I've thought about it, I've thought to myself, hmm, if I'm one of them, maybe I'm thinking, man, we're never going to get there. We're never going to make it. This has been hours. We're not that I can see the shore. I can see either side, but we're just not going to get there. We might die out here. Or maybe I'd be thinking, where's Jesus? Because, you know, the last time we were in a storm... Jesus was with us. He was asleep in the boat. We thought we were going to die, but he was asleep. So we went and woke him up. And he calmed the wind and the waves. So maybe I'd be thinking, where's Jesus? But maybe I wouldn't be because I'd be working so hard to keep the boat upright, to to battle the winds. And if we look further, we might see that maybe the disciples aren't thinking about Jesus because he shows up here in just a minute and they don't recognize him. Look with me again at verse 24. This is the part we read already. The boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves. For the wind was contrary or adverse. Battered could also be tormented. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. So, see, I think if the disciples had been looking for Jesus... They would have recognized him. And it makes, you know, in the midst of their struggle against the wind, maybe they're not looking for him. They're just too focused on what they're trying to do. And it makes me ponder in my own life, as I follow Jesus, am I like that? Too focused on 
Whatever it is that's come into my life that I didn't expect, that I didn't necessarily want, am I focused too much on that or am I, am I looking for Jesus in it? It's a good question to ask myself. You know, there's something peculiar about this story in Mark's recording of it because he talks about it in his gospel as well. Listen to what it says in Mark chapter 6, verse 48 about this particular story. It says, Seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them, at about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. And here's the part. And he intended to pass by them. Now, that's an interesting thing to think about. Why would Jesus intend to pass by them and not get into the boat? really was wondering about that. So I went to look up what several different scholars had said about this, and they try to answer the question in various ways. One of them says that Jesus intends to overtake the disciples and playfully surprise them on the other side, <laughs> which seems a little bit heartless to me, to just whisk by, you know, and leave the disciples floundering against the waves and frightened, because they're frightened, all in the interest of fun. I'm not sure that that's a good answer to the question. There's another one who says, well, Jesus intended, he doesn't, in, you know, he doesn't intend to come to them. He intends to pass by them. But when he sees them in distress, then he decides to help them out. And the problem with this idea is in Mark's version, you, you're told that actually when he's on shore, he sees them in distress before he even leaves. So that doesn't work either. So there's another one. Others try to say that he intends to just go beside them. You know, they're going to flounder their way across, fighting this wind, and Jesus is going to walk along beside them on the sea, maybe put his hand on the rail. I, I don't think any of these answer the question very well. But then I came upon a scholar who says this. He says, Jesus' intent to pass by the disciples is not related to some mundane purpose. And he talks about the phrase, to pass by, which is a verb, and in the original language, it's the word pererkamai. And when it's used in the scriptures, it's, when it's connected to a divinity, it's what's called an epiphany, right? We think of an epiphany as something like, oh, I just realized something I never realized before. But in the scriptures, when, when, when we're talking about an epiphany, we're talking about when God makes a striking and temporary appearance in the earthly realm to a select individual or group of people for the purpose of conveying a message. So I'll say that for you again. An epiphany in the scriptures is when God makes a striking and temporary appearance in the earthly realm to a select individual or a group, so we have that, for the purpose of conveying a message. This happened all the time in the Old Testament. Okay? When, when God appears to Moses at the burning bush, it's a striking appearance, right? This bush that doesn't burn up. And he has a message to convey. He says, I've heard my people's misery, and I'm sending you. Happens again to Moses in chapter 33 of Exodus. This time Moses asks them, he asks God to show him his glory. And God responds by passing before him and proclaiming his identity. And this is what he says in Exodus 33. He says, the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. And I will proclaim my name, the Lord or Yahweh, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But... You cannot see my face, for no one may see, my, see me and live. Then the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock, and when my glory passes by, there's our phrase, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and cover you until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand 
And you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. And then he goes on in that passage and it says, The Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him, proclaimed his name, the Lord, and he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness and rebellion and sin. See, God appeared in an amazing way at that point. Moses asked for it. And he had a message, proclaimed his identity. Same thing happens with Elijah in 1 Kings 19. 1 Kings 18, Elijah has this amazing battle where, he, where God defeats the prophets of Baal and then he runs away because Jezebel says, I'm going to kill you and he runs and hides and he comes to a cave and then the word of the Lord comes to Elijah and says, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he says, well, I'm the only one left. There's nobody else that follows you. And God says, Or the word of the Lord says, go stand at the mouth of the cave on the mountain for the Lord is about to pass by. And then some amazing things happen. A wind happens, a great wind that causes landslides, but the Lord was not in the wind, it says. Then there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And then there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. But then there was a gentle whisper. And the Lord says to him again, what are you doing here? You're not the only one left. You need to go back. There was a message. So in our passage, Jesus is not going to just pass them on the sea. He wants to pass by. He wants to reveal his glory to them. That's what walking on the water is all about. He's doing something amazing. He's doing something that's never been seen before. Something that only God can do. He wants them to understand that. He wants to reassure them in their fear, but they respond in greater fear. I think I might have too. So he reassures them again in verse 27. He says, take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. But then I think Peter wants some more assurance, and he says, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. And then Jesus says, come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water to Jesus. Now, again, if you've heard this story before, you know what's coming. So kind of put that out of your mind for a minute. If you were one of the disciples and you were in this boat, which is too small for 12 people, but if you were in this boat or a boat like it, and you had been in the water for so long battling the waves, right? And and you were tired, and you were frightened, and Jesus shows up and freaks you out. You think it's a ghost. And then you hear Peter say, hey, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you. What would be going through your head? See, I think I'd be thinking, did he just say, is is he going to get out of the boat? And then you hear Jesus say, come. And Peter begins to move towards the side of the boat. And first he puts one foot over the rail. And then he puts another foot over the rail, but he's still hanging on to the side. He's kind of sitting on it like this. I think the other 11 have got to be thinking, is he going to do it? Is he really going to let go? And then Peter does. But he doesn't sink. He's walking on the water towards Jesus. Now, if you're Peter... What do you think is going through Peter's head? If you're, if you're imagining you're Peter, what would be going through your mind? Never thought about this idea until I read John Ortberg's book on this story. And he says this. He says, Peter might have been thinking this. I can't believe it. 
Nobody actually thought I'd get out of the boat. I didn't think I'd do it myself. And when I, when I let go of the side, it was the hardest thing I've ever done. I thought I was going to die. But now I actually find myself doing what Jesus is doing. I don't know how it works. I'm not walking any differently. But something, someone is holding me up. I think I'm beginning to understand. He really is the one. It really is true. I don't think things will ever be the same after this. But then, Peter's thoughts and his gaze turn towards his environment. He takes him off of Jesus and he sees the wind and the waves and the white caps. And he begins to sink and he cries out, Lord, save me. And it says immediately Jesus reaches out his hand and pulls him up. Now I think we have to ask the question, what made Peter get out of the boat? Was it just a function of his personality? I think maybe. I mean, Peter was always the impulsive one, right? Cuts off the slave's ear when they come to arrest Jesus because he's going to protect him, right? Peter was always impulsive, but I think a lot of his impulsiveness comes from a desire to be with Jesus, right? He's the one when they're on the Mount of Transfiguration who says, hey, Elijah, Moses, they're all here. Let's build a shelter. Let's just stay here. Let's want to be with Jesus. Peter was the one, by the way, when once Jesus was arrested, who followed along behind him. Didn't work out very well for him, but he wanted to be with Jesus. Peter was one of the two disciples that jumped up and ran to the tomb on resurrection day when he heard from Mary Magdalene that she had seen the Lord alive. See, Peter was always impulsive. But I think a lot of his impulsiveness comes from a desire to be with Jesus. And I think I could stand to have some more impulsiveness in my life if it came from a place of wanting to be with Jesus. So I think that maybe is part of it. But I also think that maybe Peter caught on to what Jesus said when he reassured them in verse 27. What did he say? He said, take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Now, what he actually said, it's not a very good translation in our Bible. What he actually said is, take courage, it is I, am. Don't be afraid. The very same thing that God said to Moses at the burning bush. It's the very name that God proclaimed to Moses when he revealed his glory to him. It's the name Yahweh. Yahweh is the personal name of God. It emphasizes God's unchanging self-existence. It's connected with God's power to work on behalf of his people and keep his covenant with them. And all of that is wrapped up in those two little words, I am. That's the message of the epiphany, by the way, right? Walking on the water is the striking appearance, but the message is, take courage, it is I am. Don't be afraid. And I wonder if Peter started to kind of make that connection. And then I wonder if he also started to connect that with what happened earlier in the day. See, earlier in the day, and we didn't read this because we didn't have time, but where we started was immediately he made them get into a boat. Well, what happened right before that? All of the disciples were involved in an amazing miracle. We know it as the feeding of the 5,000. But most scholars will tell you there was actually more like 10,000 when you count women and children. And here's what happened. All these crowds following Jesus, he's been teaching all day. The disciples are urging him to send them away because it's getting to be nighttime and there's so many people and let them go to the villages and find food for themselves. And for whatever reason, Jesus doesn't want to send them away. He says, you feed them. This is in all the Gospels, by the way, so depending on which one you read, which account, 
The disciples' reaction is a little bit different, but most of the time it's like, are you nuts? Are we going to go spend 200 denarii, which is 200 days wages, to buy food for all of these people? He says, Jesus says, well, what do you have? And they say, we have five loaves and two fish, maybe implying just enough for us. And Jesus says, well, bring what you have to me. And so they bring it to him and he has the people sit down and then he takes the bread and he breaks it and he thanks God for it. And then he gives it to the disciples and the disciples go and give it to the people. And then he gives it to the disciples and the disciples go and give it to the people. And that happens over and over and over again until everyone is filled. Everyone is satisfied and they pick up 12 basketfuls of leftover pieces. What's going on here? Especially for the disciples. I think I think one way of looking at the story is Jesus intentionally sets up a situation for his disciples to learn something. See, we're not told whether the rest of the crowd knows about the miracle or not, but the disciples knew. They knew we started with five loaves and two fish, and then all these people got fed. So I think this is the 100-level course for the disciples of following Jesus into what seems impossible What's the lesson for them? If Jesus commands you or asks you to do something and you think you don't have enough, bring what you have. Do what you can do and trust Jesus to make it more than enough. And I ponder if Peter started to make that connection and now he's in the boat. And I wonder if that's why he commands, asks Jesus to command him, because he's made the connection. Earlier, Jesus commanded us to feed the people, and that seemed impossible. In fact, it was. And then he commanded us to bring what we had. So maybe if Jesus commands me, I'll be able to do it, even though, <laughs> other than Jesus, I've never seen anybody do that before. And so Jesus gets out of the boat, and he does what he knows how I'm sorry, Peter gets out of the boat, and he does what he knows how to do, he walks. And he trusts Jesus to do what only Jesus could do, hold him up out of the water. So as we turn towards the end of this story, we ask, I think we ask ourselves, I ask myself, what do I take from this in my own life? What's the boat maybe Jesus is asking me to get out of? That's a different way of asking it. Or if we follow Jesus into what seems impossible, what might we discover? Because over the years, and I've studied a lot and read a lot on this passage, and a lot of scholars and people, even myself at times, have focused on Peter's failure, that he, at some point, he takes his eyes off Jesus, he begins to sink. And I think there's lessons to be learned there. And I think we identify with that because we recognize our failures and our struggles. But I also think you got to give Peter some props for getting out of that boat. He's the only one. The other 11 disciples, they're just sitting. And Jesus does not rebuke Peter for wanting to get out of the boat. In fact, I think he's amazed that one of his disciples could follow him that far. And when he does save him and rebuke him, I read it, I think it's a mild rebuke. I think he's going, man, you were doing it. It was amazing. Why did you doubt? He uses it as a way to teach Peter. It's not a harsh rebuke, I don't think. And I think the emphasis in this passage is on the grace and the power of Jesus, not on the failure of Peter. 
Jesus is the one who walks on water, right? Jesus is the one who enables Peter to walk on the water. Jesus is the one who's Yahweh, the self-existent, unchanging God, who's working on behalf of his people. And Jesus is the one who saves Peter when he begins to sink. But here's the thing. You only get to personally discover those types of things about God if you get out of the boat. Peter got to personally discover three things about the disciples, about Jesus, that the other disciples only got to watch. First one is this. Only Peter. Only Peter knows the exhilaration of walking on the water. And I bet once you walk on water, you never forget it for the rest of your life. The second one is sure. Peter failed. He took his eyes off Jesus. He began to sink. And only Peter knows the shame of public failure. But thirdly, only Peter knows, and in a way the other disciples could not, only Peter knows that when he sank, Jesus was wholly adequate to save him. See, Peter knows that in a way the other 11 don't. He had a shared trust, a shared connection, because of this moment with Jesus. And as we've thought about God's work in our lives and in the world the past few weeks as a church with the Great Commission several weeks ago and this idea of what's going on with compassion and getting to partner with them and and even Tim's message last week about taking stock of your life and carving out some time as we've thought about that. I've thought about this in my life over the years and related to this text that I knew I was going to be in today. And about 16 years ago, Lincoln Berean was just getting started in the church planting in India. The Berean Fellowship wanted to plant 300 churches in three years. And Lincoln Berean, because it's one of the largest, had said, well, we would like to support 100 of those pastors. Brian challenged the congregation way back then. Though, hey, if you, would be, if, if you would be willing to commit to that, and commitment you would give, I think it was $100 a month for three years for a pastor, and pray for him. And so I went home and prayed about it, thought about it, looked at my finances, and thought, I have the means to do this. So I committed to it. And my son Luke, who was three at the time, we began to pray every night at bedtime for the pastors in India. Simple prayers. We didn't know anything about India. We just prayed and said, God, would you bless the pastors in India? We didn't know names. We said, God, would you be with those that are training them? Would you be with them as they get sent out and protect them? Would you take them and give them opportunities to share the gospel? Simple prayers. I brought what I had, some money, some prayers. And I trusted Jesus to take it further than I ever thought it would go. And I really was happy to be there, and I thought, that's this. I didn't think it would go any further than that for me. And then about three years ago, my son Luke was in high school now, and I began to hear about several trips that the high school ministry had taken to India to do some outreach with the churches over there. And I got this nudge in my spirit of, maybe you should go. <laughs> you got to understand, I, don't, I didn't like to travel outside the United States. I, I was, I'm nervous. I like to be in a place where somebody can explain to me in English when I'm lost which way I need to go. It's, but I prayed, and I went and talked to my wife, who loves to travel internationally. So you can bet... Her answer was, if you're in, I'm in. And we prayed, 
And long story short is, for the last three years, we've had the privilege of taking three different teams of college students for three weeks at a time to India. And the first year I was there, it hit me when I sat down for dinner with some of the pastors in Kolkata. And they were asking me about my life and telling them my story. And in the process, it all of a sudden hit me. I had my own epiphany. I was like, holy cow, God has taken those prayers that I'd forgotten about and that money. And he'd taken it so much further in the lives of these people and the people in their congregation in India. And now he was taking it so much further in my life. And then the second year, Luke graduated from high school and he was in college, so he went on the team with us and he got to see what he had prayed about for so many years before. And now he started an outreach to international students at UNL's campus, partly because of that trip. And so if you ask me, are you glad that you prayed, that you gave what you had, that you went? I'd say absolutely. (laughs) I wouldn't trade those experiences and my relationships with those people. It's like walking on water for me. And that's a great story, and it ties up nice in a bow and all that, but stories don't always end like that. There are other ways to trust God. There are other ways to take a step of faith without going overseas. In fact, as part of what I came home from India with the first year, I said, okay, God, I feel like you're leading me to serve some people that are underserved, because I serve people that are served well all the time, and I get a lot back from it, but I specifically decided I wanted to serve somebody who could not bless me back. So I became a reading tutor with City Impact. So once a week, I'd go into the school, sit down with a first grader, and help them learn sight words, and read them a story. And I did what I knew how to do. I can read. I can help some kids learn some basic skills. And I'm trusting Jesus to take it further than I ever thought it could go. And I may never hear the end of any of that story. And that's okay. I'm going to trust Jesus with it. I don't know what your boat is today. I don't know what the step that Jesus is asking you to take is. And probably most of us are never going to find ourselves in a situation like Peter where we have the opportunity to walk on water. But we do find ourselves in situations at times that are, we think are impossible. They bring great fear to our minds. They cause us to ask all kinds of questions like, what if I make the wrong decision? What if I fail the test? What if she doesn't like me? What if I talk to my friend about Jesus and they, they really don't want anything to do with me anymore? What if I can't find a job? And a thousand other questions that come to our minds. But one of the truths we have to embrace about life is that it's risky. My stepdad used to say to my mom all the time, life is a risk. And because of that risk, we begin to fear, and it's a natural reaction. But what I see in the story this morning is, if you want to experience the power of God in your life in a personal way, you've got to take a step of faith and get out of the boat and get your feet wet, whatever that means for you. even when it seems impossible. Because if we do that, when it seems impossible, we just might discover that Jesus is always there to see us through. And if we'll take what we have, when it seems impossible, if we'll just take what we have and give the small things that we can give, the next step, the small step, we can then trust Jesus to multiply our small steps 
to multiply our small offerings and take them further than we ever thought they could go. See, this is the fourth week in a row, as I've thought about it, that we're being challenged to take a step of faith, right? Different types of steps of faith, the Great Commission, the idea of being able to pray or give or go. Then the week after that, this idea of sponsoring a child with compassion, which is a longer process, right? It's a longer commitment. It's a, you know, hopefully it's a lifelong commitment for that child till they're, out, till they're out of school. Or even to carve out time, which could be a huge step of faith. With this busy of life that we live. And what I've found is that sometimes it takes God that long to get through to me on what the step is. So maybe you didn't do one of those things. Maybe you didn't sponsor a child with compassion. You know what? I'll bet if you were to email the church tomorrow, and you, and, but you're hearing God say, I, want you, I wanted you to do that. And you're thinking, man, I missed it. I think if you email tomorrow, you get in on that. Never too late to take the step God's asking you to take. Or maybe it's to go. Maybe it's to carve out time, like Tim has said, so you can hear better. I don't know what your step is, but I'm pretty sure the Holy Spirit does, and he's probably talking to you about it right now. So I'm going to pray and invite you to pray with me and ask the Spirit to give us wisdom to know what step to take. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Jesus, Holy Spirit, we're so grateful that you have not left us alone, that even Peter was not expected to walk on the water alone or by himself, and that you don't expect us to take steps on our own. You expect to be here to see us through, and you expect to lead us through your Spirit. And God, I just want to give a few moments here just for my friends here to pray themselves and to talk to you about what it is that you're saying to them. God, we pray and ask you for wisdom to know what to do with what we've heard from you today. And pray that this next song, as we think about wisdom and following you, that you would continue to speak to our hearts. Help us to get out of the boat, Jesus. We pray in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.